Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 82, Diamond in the Rough, on a second method invented to synthesize diamonds. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. With this episode, we begin to move firmly into the 1980s. This is the time when my chemical education began, and so, with increasing frequency and as time moves forward, I can talk about my own intersections or memories of chemical inventions discoveries, and activities. Back in episode 55, I discussed early methods to attempt to synthesize diamonds. Diamond is, of course, the element carbon with a certain crystal structure. Another well-known crystal structure of carbon is graphite, used to make pencils, and this crystalline form is hexagons of carbon atoms, but in separate layers. One of English author H.G. Wells's stories from 1894, The Diamond Maker, came in the wake of Moisson's fruitless efforts to synthesize diamond, describing a man who secretly tried the high pressure of dynamite inside a cylinder, but was informed upon as a possible anarchist making bombs. The race to create artificial diamonds was initially won by Tracy Hall, an employee of General Electric, whose method of high-pressure squeezing was successful by 1954. But you need expensive equipment to squeeze down hard enough on carbon to force it into the diamond crystal structure. And others decided to try lower-pressure methods instead, and that is what we now focus on. Diamond is not just valuable as a gemstone. It is ultra-hard, so is useful for cutting tools and polishing equipment to make specially machined parts out of hard metal alloys. And this is the attractiveness of diamond in the Cold War era, advanced machinery to beat the other political side. Tiny bits of diamonds are obviously of value to making industrial parts, but there are also times you might want an entire object coated with a thin layer of protective diamond. William Eversoll William Eversoll worked for a rival company to General Electric, that is, Union Carbide, in the 1950s. He was the first to document a different non-squeezing method to make diamonds for which he submitted a U.S. patent application in July 1958. The final patent was approved in 1961. His idea was this. Take a tiny crystal of diamond called a seed crystal. In a special chamber, pass an organic compound as a gas over this seed crystal. The gas is deposited as carbon atoms onto the seed crystal, and you gradually grow layers of new diamond crystal. Now, the graphite form of carbon is thermodynamically more stable than the diamond form at the pressures and temperatures of this method, 
But as Eversole noted in his patent, quote, the diamond system approaches equilibrium faster than the graphite system. This indicates that diamond can be grown on seed crystals. Under the conditions of the invention, diamond is deposited at a much faster rate than is black carbon. Unquote. The temperature needed is somewhere around 1,000 degrees Celsius, but anywhere from 600 to 1,600 degrees Celsius seems to work. The gaseous organic compounds used to deposit carbon atoms can be methane, ethane, propane, chloromethane, acetone, and others. Eversol noted that benzene, carbon disulfide, carbon tetrachloride, and other organic compounds lacking methyl groups don't work. As for the seed crystal, the patent describes diamond powder with particles about 100 nanometers across as satisfactory. The overall reaction is one molecule of methane, CH4, converts to carbon as a diamond atom, plus two molecules of hydrogen gas, H2. This method is now called chemical vapor deposition, or CVD for short. CVD coatings can theoretically cover entire sections of mechanical parts. One can even imagine diamond-coated lenses for instruments or glasses. The system was unwieldy, but research continued in both the USA and Soviet Union to improve the process. At Bell Laboratories, J.J. Lander and J. Morrison found in 1966 that atomic hydrogen was necessary to suppress graphite from growing, and this atomic hydrogen reacted with the surface atoms in the diamond to coat the diamond surface with a layer of hydrogen atoms. These atoms were not merely scooting around on the surface like drops of water on a piece of glass. Each hydrogen atom was bonded to a surface carbon atom, therefore acting like a protective tip for each sp3 electron orbital sticking out of the surface. Both John Angus at Case Western University and Boris Deryagin and D.V. Fedoseev at the Institute of Physical Chemistry in the Soviet Union worked to improve the process in the 1960s and early 1970s. The problems with the method were that growth rate is low, like one atomic layer of diamond crystal carbon per hour, and you often got simultaneous deposition of graphite carbon, which is thermodynamically more stable. The result was that you have to blast the diamond surface with hydrogen atoms to react and remove the graphite parts and leave only diamond. Given these downsides, a lot of chemists were rather skeptical that this chemical vapor deposition of diamond, though technically feasible, would be anything more than merely a curiosity. But techniques improved. By 1981, Deryagin's group in Moscow reported that they could grow diamond coatings by chemical vapor deposition on other materials without seed crystals. They could grow the coating at up to one micrometer per hour, a thousand times faster than before. They used three techniques to get hydrogen atoms into the vapor mix and allow better diamond growth. One, heating a platinum wire, which breaks apart hydrogen gas into hydrogen atoms by catalysis. Two, 
zapping the gas with electrical sparks to break apart hydrogen molecules. Three, placing a hot tungsten wire right near the material upon which you want to grow diamond, and then the wire will activate the hydrogen molecules and break them apart. Their descriptions and reports were all in Russian, so not readily accessible to Western researchers. And the whole thermodynamic problem, which is that graphite is more stable than diamond anyway, drove scientists away from being interested in the Soviet research. So the CVD diamond studies were relatively rare and not taken too seriously. A Japanese research team at the National Institute for Research on Inorganic Materials, generally including a scientist named S. Matsumoto, took up the idea in the early 1980s. Among their variations on the CVD diamond growth were to try generating a hydrogen plasma via microwaves and radio waves. Eventually, the Japanese team was able to get even faster diamond growth rates on molybdenum metal with a mixture of methane, hydrogen, and argon gases at about one atmosphere pressure with radio frequency induction heating. This gave a growth rate of one micrometer per minute, 60 times faster than before. After these independent reports, researchers and industry started taking the idea of growing diamond coatings and films with chemical vapor deposition seriously. Firms like Alcoa, DuPont, Exxon, Ford, General Motors, IBM, PPG, Texas Instruments, Hitachi, Mitsubishi, Seiko, Toshiba, and Showa Denka began active research projects. So why the interest in diamond coatings? Obviously, machining, grinding, and polishing is one aspect of industrial diamonds. Diamond is hard, but chemically, diamond is also resistant to acid, though susceptible to alkalis, salts with oxygen, and some metals. Diamond also has a low coefficient of friction, which means that there is little friction when diamond meets and slides on other materials. Diamond has highest thermal conductivity of any substance, meaning that it can draw heat away from hot items, such as computer chips, while operating. Therefore, a diamond-based heatsink for electronic circuitry is best. Optically, diamond is transparent over a large range of wavelengths, including visible and infrared. Finally, look at carbon's position in the periodic table. We mentioned this already a while back. Carbon is at the top of the group 4 column, but underneath is silicon, and then underneath silicon is germanium, and underneath germanium is tin. There is a gradual progression of chemical properties from clearly non-metallic carbon to clearly metallic tin as you go downward, but all these elements can act as a semiconductor under the right circumstances, even diamond. With all these good to excellent material properties, diamond rapidly came to be regarded as an important material in the 1980s, with the first International Symposium on Diamond Materials held in Los Angeles, California in 1989, 
bringing together many scientists and engineers. My own graduate research intersected with CVD Diamond. My laboratory was involved in surface chemistry on semiconductors, which included silicon and its neighbors in the periodic table column, germanium and diamond carbon. I didn't work with diamond, but some of my fellow graduate students did. Current uses for chemical vapor deposited diamond films include laser windows for high-power carbon dioxide lasers used for cutting and slicing materials, heat sinks to pull heat away from hot electronic circuitry, detectors for ionizing radiation, scalpels in medicine, diamond-coated high-fidelity speakers, cutting tools, lenses. Anvils for ultra-high pressure research, and even laboratory-grown gems, first successfully produced in the late 1990s. The advantage of laboratory-grown gem-quality diamonds is that it cuts you out of the often exploitative diamond mining commerce in Africa. As to actual electronic components like transistors or diodes. Yes, CVD diamond components have been made in the laboratory, but not yet added into commercial electronic circuitry. Chemical vapor deposition is not only used for diamonds; the process is valuable for coating with other solid substances as well. You can deposit silicon or silicon dioxide. The latter is really a form of quartz. Silicon nitride is also a CVD process. Metal films can be grown via the CVD method too, including tungsten, aluminum, copper, molybdenum, tantalum, and titanium. Mercury-cadmium telluride films are also grown this way, and this material is used as a detector of infrared light in spectrometers. In graduate school, we had a mercury-cadmium telluride detector, which needed to be cooled with liquid nitrogen. To work correctly, so let's look at some of the science behind CVD diamonds used in the gem trade. Diamonds made this way need added processing for gem quality, that is, high pressure and high temperature annealing, abbreviated to HPHT. Diamonds often have impurities, which give the crystals interesting colors. The most common impurities in diamond, which is nominally pure carbon, are nitrogen atoms and boron atoms. Boron is immediately to the left of carbon in the periodic table, while nitrogen is to the right. For nitrogen atoms occasionally appearing in a carbon crystal, the atoms can be spaced apart. They can aggregate together, and even can form little areas with a missing atom in the middle. All these defects in a perfect diamond affect its color. Diamonds with boron substitutions often have a blue color, for example, while some nitrogen-containing diamonds have a green to orange-yellow color. The concentration can vary widely, from nearly undetectable, say below one atom in a million. 
to as high as 3,000 atoms per million. The general way to detect such defects or substitutions in the crystal lattice is via infrared spectroscopy when the concentration of defects is above one atom in a million. To find defects below that amount, chemists use visible and ultraviolet spectroscopy. High temperature, high pressure here means you heat the diamond up to around 2,000 degrees Celsius and squeeze it at around 10,000 times standard atmospheric pressure for generally around a few minutes. This treatment generally removes the light brown color of many diamonds. While details of how the annealing process removes the color of diamonds are still not understood, generally scientists believe that the high temperatures allow migration of impurity atoms to where they aggregate into groupings that don't affect the color of the gem, and the pressure allows the crystal lattice to perfect itself. Note that real diamonds are also squeezed deep inside the earth at high temperatures, so this HTHP process mimics, in a way, geological processes. As to whether that affects the value or desirability of a diamond, I leave to jewelers. I will leave you with the thought that many diamonds in the gem world have a terrible human cost, now called conflict diamonds or blood diamonds, with estimates now reporting around 3.7 million people killed over this way of extracting diamonds from underground. Often the mines are run by dictatorships or military juntas, employing children, and eager to keep power with the funds from selling the diamonds. Zimbabwe is one example of this, according to Human Rights Watch, an international organization reporting on human rights abuse. Beyond that, to save money in mining, bad techniques cause fish kills and soil erosion. Many, many tons of dirt must be uncovered to get one carat of diamonds. If you insist on owning diamonds, consider laboratory made. For the gruesome scientific details of the HPHT process and how it affects diamonds with all sorts of crystal defects and impurities, you might want to read a book called HPHT Treated Diamonds by Inga Dobrinets, Victor Vince, and Alexander Zaitsev from 2013. In our next episode, we explore a little history of the universal scientific set of units used to report experimental observations, the metric system. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. Music